Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Renoites. My name is Connor McQuibby. I'm your host. Renoites is the weekly interview podcast for Northern Nevada. On this show, I talk with various people of note from the Reno, Sparks, Carson, Northern Nevada area. A little bit of news and politics, nonprofits, businesses, arts and culture, a little bit of everything. The idea is that the show will have something for everybody. So if you live in Reno or you know people who live in Reno who listen to podcasts, they should be subscribing, checking out the show. I'm sure there are people on the list that they are interested to hear from. Today on the show, I'm very excited to welcome Emily Barney. Emily is one of the founders of the Doula Co-op. I recently did an episode about the Doula Co-op from the Riverside Farmers Market. I've been at the Farmers Market the last few months and doing some mini episodes with some of the vendors there. And I learned a little bit about what doulas do. Emily and I got started talking about death doulas and how we as a society deal with death or more accurately, don't properly deal with death. A lot of planning that we don't do, a lot of practices that we are not really taking care of that mean we probably don't have the best relationship with death. It was great to learn a little bit more about what doulas do and a great conversation. I hope that you take away from it as much as I did. Before we get to the episode, there is a whole bunch of stuff coming up that I want to tell you about real quickly. This week, I have another live episode of Renoites. I've been doing this for the last year or so, about once a month, at Black Rabbit Mead. This week, my guest is Kat Hart. She's a local musician, songwriter, singer, and it's going to be a lot of fun. There's going to be a couple songs performed, and we're going to talk about Reno's local music scene, about being a singer, songwriter, performer. Kat also does tarot readings, so we're going to talk about that part of her life. Really fun stuff, and I'm so excited to be back at Black Rabbit after not being able to be there last month. So come on out. That's going to be this Thursday. Technically starts at 8, but I will be there from about 7 o'clock p.m. So come early. Grab a drink with me. If you're a patron of the show, I will buy your first drink. Come on down. I'll buy you a drink if you're a patron. You can learn more at patreon.com slash renoites about that. And even if you're not a patron, come out, hang out, have a drink. This is my opportunity to meet and mingle and chat with listeners and friends. It's one of my few opportunities to do normal, fun, social stuff on a weeknight. So start your weekend early, Thursday night, Black Rabbit Mead. I was also recently a guest on a different podcast. The Worst Little Podcast is one of the longest running podcasts in the universe, probably. They have been making episodes since 13 years ago. They just passed 500 episodes. They just won the Reno News and Review's Best Local Podcast, and it was great to be able to go on their show and collaborate a little bit. They have a music-focused show. Local band Donkey Jaw was the musical performance. They played several songs while we were there. Really great group of folks. Really fun. And that episode, I believe, is either out now or soon. I will put a link to it in the show notes. And, of course, if you just can't get enough Connor, many of you know I host trivia nights for DJ Trivia at several local bars. You can find me at Lead Dog Brewing on Mondays, Sierra Tap House on Tuesdays, Voodoo Brewing on Wednesdays, and the Brewer's Cabinet Production Facility on Thursdays. DJ Trivia is always super fun to play. It is free to play. There's prizes for the top teams. And we have so many different venues. You can kind of find the host and the venue that you like. There's probably one in your neighborhood. You can learn more at DJTriviaSierraNevada.com to find all the locations near you. But, you know, come play at mine. It's fun. If you have suggestions for future guests for the show, please let me know. My email address is Connor, C-O-N-O-R, at Renoites.com. This season is pretty well booked, but I'm doing mini episodes. I'm always planning for the future, and I love listener feedback. So please let me know what you want to hear, who you want to hear. And now this week's guest, Emily Barney from the Doula Co-op. Emily Barney from the Doula Co-op. 
Welcome to Renoites. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. This is great. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. We had Sam D'Andrea, who is, are you the co-founders, the two of you? We have three co-founders, so some call us the tri-founders. I don't know <laughs> if that's a thing, but it'd be cool if we made it one. Uh, but there's three of us that are co-founders. And then I am the executive director, and Sam is the director of education. Excellent. Yeah. So we did a mini episode with Sam. You have had a booth at the Riverside Farmers Market. So we've been booth neighbors a handful of times. And after I recorded this episode with Sam about the doula co-op, kind of what is a doula, really just the introduction to the idea of what doulas Mm -hmm. do. We had like a conversation for like an hour about (laughs) death doulas because a lot of people understand doulas being associated with with birth, but there's all major life changes are kind of the things that doulas do. So we'll talk about the doula co-op, but just doulas in general. Like, what is a doula and how do you explain that to people who have no concept of, like, what a doula is? Yeah, (laughs) which happens often. So I've gotten better at this over the years. Sam really put it so well in her episode. She said doulas are people who support folks through life's transitions. And that really encompasses, I think, the the larger frame of doulas and doula work and the concept because we support people going through their emotional experiences that are marked by transitions in life. Oftentimes that's birth, postpartum, things around there because frankly, people need a lot of support during that time. It's intense. But there's also this concept of death doulas that has been around but is like gaining more popularity and so as an overarching concept being able to say okay we are hired by families in either the birth space or in the death space to be of service to whatever it is that they need during that transition. Mm -hmm. So that can look like informational support, community resource support. We generally know a lot about the communities in which we live and the resources that are there. And then we're there also to completely give space and hold space for that person's transition. So maybe they're going from, you know, maiden to mother, right? That kind of archetypical transition. And they need someone to witness that. They, they don't know that they need that. Some people know they need that. Mm-hmm. But other folks, they don't know how valuable it can be to have someone who's seen you from the very beginning of your transition in through now you are in that role. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can translate across the transitions of life, birth, death, et cetera. Yeah. Through like the medical process, is that something that's missing? Is like you might have an OBGYN who you see for appointments that are specifically geared towards these specific medical needs at these times, but that person is not your, you know, they're not holding your hand from the very beginning to the very end, right? Certainly not. Certainly not. Um, and, and to be fair, no one in the medical system is able to do that for anyone because they are seeing massive numbers of people, depending on where you live in your, in your area, of course. But, you know, here at, in Reno, the renowned, they're seeing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people a day. So even your L&D nurses, you know, they're they're one-to-one with their patients, but you still might see two or three nurses if you're in the hospital for a 48-hour labor, for example. Mm-hmm. And the OB, you get whoever's on call. We call it, and it is known as continuity of care in the in the world, but continuity of care is both like physical care, you know, done by providers, mm-hmm. but it's it's also emotional 
care. It's so much of that emotional care. And so going back to like the definition of a doula, you know, we are there as a non-medical support person throughout the process of your transition and providing the emotional, physical community resource, um, oftentimes spiritual as well, Mm -hmm. especially in death. You know, that's such a cosmic thing. Um, People really want and and need someone to help reflect back some of these huge questions that they're facing, like what is life? Why Mm -hmm. are we here? How do we move forward once people leave? So those questions are we were we're there for those questions. Yeah, I have some questions on on that because that seems like a huge part of this process is yeah. how do you kind of integrate people's religious views, spiritual views with the way that you work? But how did you get involved in all of this? Mm-hmm. Emily Barney, what is mm-hmm. your connection to the doula world? How long have you been doing this and kind of what drew you to the work that you're doing? Yeah. I I was drawn to this work um sort of by way of manifestation. I was really manifesting a role for myself in the world and a job that allowed me to work for myself. I didn't know specifically yet that I wanted to work for myself and be like my own business owner, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which I am now, but I knew I wanted to help people. I knew I wanted to fulfill this part of me that is always seeking to connect with people on really deep levels Mm -hmm. and, and be there with them, for them, in whatever way. And I can do that very easily, um, just as a human. Like, you give me five people in two hours, I'll pretty much have their life stories, and <laughs> I can I can recite those for you. So naturally, I'm very good at that, but I was in the restaurant industry, which, again, service-oriented job. So I, mm-hmm. I loved doing that, putting myself through college in that way. And I did it for almost 10 years. And I was in and out. I did all sorts of positions. And by the time I graduated college and had a degree in environmental science, um, I knew that I didn't want to work in that space, but I wanted to do something about the world. You know, I thought climate change and environmental work, like that'll really feed that part. But then realizing I was really just going to be a cog in the system still, mm. um, even though it's worthy work, I just, it's not meant for me. So I was working as a manager in San Francisco at a restaurant and I just, I woke up every day not wanting to go to work. And, and I think a lot of folks can, you know, they can understand and relate to that feeling. And, mm-hmm. and I did it for a long time. I did it for longer than I wanted to. And then I finally started asking friends and myself and the universe like who who am i supposed to be what am i supposed to do this is not it like i'm not meant to just wake up go to work help make sure people get fed and then go home mm-hmm. like that there's so much more for me um so i really started actively asking the world and the universe those questions and just talking about it a lot you know when you manifest things you're yeah. like asking questions of everyone um and i finally got my my answer when I was chatting with a very dear friend of mine and she was planning for her first biological child. She has a, a, a previous child, but not biological. So this was her first birth experience. And she was sharing about how she wanted a home birth and she was going to get a doula. And I was like, what's a doula? That's what is that? I've never heard that word. And she's like, you don't know what a doula is. Like she knows me so well. Mm-hmm. She's like, you connect so well with people. You're great in like moments of really intense energy you'd be great at being a doula i was like huh all right well that's an interesting little tidbit Mm. and then the next day someone said something about them 
going to get a doula training and that they were going to do this training that was down the street from my house in San Francisco. I could walk there. And I was just like, okay, maybe there's something yeah, to meant this. meant to be, right? <laughs> it was very just kismet. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was asking specifically of the universe, you know, what is, what is my purpose? What am I here for? Mm-hmm. Um, so my, my business name is Doula Purposes. Um, that was how I decided to label myself and create my, my doula business, um, which is on pause now for the doula co-op to mm. sort of take in that space. But yeah, that's, that's kind of how it started. And yeah. How has it been so far compared to what you expected or what you first learned about being a doula or what this world was like? Uh, how long have you been doing this and how's it lined up with what you first expected of it? Uh, well, I've been doing it since 2020. I got, I started the training in 2019 and then the first day of the shutdown in San Francisco for the pandemic was the last day of our training mm. and it was a 10 week training. So we, everyone was super jazzed to like go out in the world and like support the world <laughs> and then everything shut down. Uh-huh. So there was about a year that I was just sitting with these thoughts and this work and it went so much deeper. I'm so grateful for that time because it allowed me to really sink into the information that I received because once I started the training, I was fired up. The system is broken Mm. and it is hard to get what you want and what you need. And so I had this, this passion ignited in me to go out and do that, but I didn't know where I fit. So now that I've had quite a bit of time to really sit with what do I want to be and how do I want to be in this and what kind of doula am I? You know, there's so many types of doulas, Mm -hmm. which is great because there's so many types of people. But when I first started the work, I, you know, envisioned myself doing full-time doula work, birth work specifically. But during the pandemic, they offered a, an online postpartum training. So I took that. Um, And so I did postpartum work was my first jump into the world for some friends in Reno, actually. Mm. And that's how I got to Reno. Um, mm. So that's a really special connection. But I, I would, I thought that I would be supporting people directly. Mm. Right. I thought I would be doing client care. Yeah. Um, and in the last year and change, the doula co-op really came into being. And I realized that in order for me to be a sustainable doula, to have a sustainable business myself, a practice, a strong network of referrals that I could, you know, if I wanted to go on vacation and people contact me like, here, contact these doulas. Mm. I could see that the community was not prepared for doula work to be sustainable in Reno and Nevada in general. And so I did not know that I was going to go into a role of community organization and community building before I could comfortably put myself in a role of direct client care. Mm -hmm. So I think that's been the biggest difference is just realizing how much you are your own business, but also how much you need your community to run that business sustainably. At least that was my experience. Yeah. Tell me just briefly about what the doula co-op business model is. So it's uh, various doulas in the area who are working together, kind of sharing resources and communication. How does that, how does that work? What does it look like? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a general, generally very great 
description. Um, we're a 501c3 nonprofit. So we're an organization and we established because Medicaid is now covering birth doulas in Nevada. And so with that change in our profession being recognized by healthcare and insurance, there is a lot of need for doulas to come together and say, what is this going to look like? Mm. How are we in that space um, together and as a community? There's a lot of decisions to be made um, about certification and state requirements and trainings. And those are decisions that not every single doula is going to have input on. But I had the opportunity to apply to be on the doula advisory committee for the state of Nevada for the certification. And so I sort of jumped into that role and realized that there was a lot of collaboration to be done and to be had. And the co-op was really born from recognizing that doulas want to work with other doulas, but we're in silos. And so there sort of needs to be a connection point or a hub mm. where we can all gain the same, maybe not the same, but we can gain knowledge from the same community without having to see us as competition mm. um, to really create and hold the abundance concept in mind of there's more than enough clients to go around. There's like so many people giving birth that don't have doulas mm -hmm. and that could want them or need them. It really was born out of that, that need. And so now we are a membership-based organization. Um, and so doulas can become members with us. And when you're a member, then you have access to all the different ways in which we are trying to bring resources and information and professional development and programs to the doulas in the area and we also are you know out to the public as well like we're trying to be very mindful of gatekeeping information and making sure that the whole community gets access to these things but we are supporting the underserved populations of nevada so our our main focus and our audience is parents and families who otherwise don't have access to private health care or private insurance some of the programs that we're starting up are in collaboration with folks like the Northern Nevada Hopes Clinic, working with their unhoused population, working with folks who are experiencing substance use while pregnant, um, and providing education, providing doula services, and then also letting the community know about doulas. I mean, so much of it is just awareness mm -hmm. on top of creating the programs for the doulas and speakers and trainings. And we did some legislative work that Sam talked about in her episode. Yeah. And so we've, we kind of got our hands in a lot of different places, which was not expected. But the heart of it is this, this hub for yeah. doulas and families. Excellent. Uh, I know that mostly we've talked about birth, but the thing that I'm interested in for this conversation, what we'll talk about mostly is this concept of a death doula and not just death doulas, but how we as a society, both, you know, both locally and nationally, and I guess like worldwide and historically mm -hmm. deal with death, because it does not seem that we do a very good job of it necessarily in this time and place. Mm, uh, I don't know if you yeah. would agree. So <laughs> can you just talk a little yeah. bit about um, like, what is the typical not in the doula world, but outside of death doulas, like what is the typical death experience, dying experience like for people? And where do you think that doulas kind of step in and help make that better? What's the now and what do you kind of want to see as far as how we deal with death? Mm, yes. That's a giant a question. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm so here for it though. It will go all sorts of places. So reel me back in and we'll yeah. find our way. <laughs> but the way that it is now, 
is highly dependent on what your level of access and resources are. I think that's an overarching concept that I want people to really think about and keep present in their minds while we talk about the death industry because like everything in America, everything is consumer-based. So this is a business just as birth is a business. And so the folks who are in charge of the business of death have ways in which they run that system. And if you do not have resources to pay for the services that death requires, then you are doing things very much in your own way. So I can speak to what a person, regardless of financial capacity, might experience, but the folks who are experiencing things, you know, like in the undocumented community, in the refugee community, if they don't have the ability to work with the death industry, they are sadly leaving those those bodies just to to the world. They're not able to honor their dead. They're not able to celebrate their dead. And they are, you know, nameless, faceless folks. And that is heartbreaking on many levels. And so that is a byproduct of the death industry moving out of the home, out of the community, mm. and into an industrial model, big picture. But the way that it works is someone dies. Most of the time it's in the hospital. But let's say someone dies at home. If you die at home, then you kind of think, who's the first person I call? Many people call a funeral home or a funeral director. If the dying person did not have anything in place for what they wanted to do with their body, if they didn't have any sort of transport organized, if they hadn't been preparing for their death, then the funeral home will tell you about your transportation options. Most people are not going to give you a lot of resources on how to keep a body cool, which you can do for several days, but they will typically go and send someone over to pick up the body. It might go to the morgue and then they will leave it in cooling until or in some facility that the funeral home might have a partnership with. They don't have one in-house. And then you will begin all of your funeral preparations and there'll be many questions. They will also provide you lists of goods and services that you can purchase. Um, oftentimes those decisions are being made in incredible emotional distress mm -hmm. and they're not always super forthcoming about the costs associated and what you actually have rights to say no to um, and the rights of which you have to understand the process as it's happening. You know, it goes very quickly and then, yeah, then you have your funeral. Um, your person might be embalmed because that is a very typical thing that they provide if they didn't have any sort of burial or disposition plans, then they will typically send a, a traditional burial with a cemetery or a cremation. Those are the two most common ways that people are choosing to use their bodies after death. And then you're kind of left with a huge mess after that. Lots of paperwork, mm. lots of accounting, lots of wrapping up affairs, understanding what to do with possessions and where does the money go? Always the big question. Yeah. Um, is the idea that doulas are part of this process before dying? Because sometimes people die and you don't know that they are going to die. So you can't sure. exactly, I wouldn't imagine you have a death doula if you don't expect that you're going to be dying soon. But where do death doulas fit in for the people who have some expectation? Maybe they're elderly, maybe they have a terminal condition. Where along that timeline 
is a doula really important and what kind of role do they play on the way towards that end? Mm-hmm. There's sort of one of the death doulas in the in the co-op, she describes it as there is the bucket of folks who are not dying, perfectly healthy, you and me work here and mm-hmm. knock on one for all intents and purposes, <laughs> not going anywhere for a while. The death doula can come in and support us in our planning, in our end of life planning. So a lot of doulas step in in that role where they are helping people do the preparations for their funeral and their will and their trust and the things like that. You're not having to make all those decisions in grief. And it's being made by the person themselves. The family's not guessing what this person might want. So that's doula support in that way hugely. End of life planning for otherwise healthy people. And then there's the death doulas who are supporting people who have terminal illness or elderly and they're, they know that death is coming. Maybe they have already worked through the hospice system or maybe they are foregoing hospice but want to do some home care. Death doulas can come in at that point and support the families or the loved ones that are caring for that individual. That can look so many ways, really dependent on when they walk in the room. What does their intuition tell them this family might need? Because they might call and say, we've got four brothers. All of them don't know what to do with dad's stuff. But dad is dying and someone said we should hire a death doula. Mm. So that death doula's job is to go into that family's home and understand who is my client here. Because the client is actually the dying person. Right. The, The contract is with the dying person. However, we're there so much for the circle of support that that individual is surrounded by. Mm -hmm. And we have conversations with the dying person around, you know, what would you like in this process? You know, we're just, we're reflecting back to them that they have options, that they can take control of this experience, that they can do it their own way, that they can personalize it, Um, what their fears are. Sometimes it's just holding their hand and talking to them about what they're afraid of. There is that realm of care that, people are in which is more specialty i think like maybe all of the emotional sort of relational issues are settled and it's everyone's okay with the dying process everyone's like okay we've accepted this but dad was a musician in his life and we don't know what to do with all of his records and his collection of band t-shirts and how do we honor him Mm. And then the death doula can come in and support a legacy project for that individual and that family. Their visits can be comprised of working together and talking to the family, talking to the dying person if they're available to talk to and create a life legacy of what they are leaving behind, Mm -hmm. which really helps to ease the potential trauma of what the death is. I have a personal example of a dear friend of our family's. She's been in my life since before I was born. Definitely a mom energy for me. And she died of cancer last year around this time. She knew she was dying and she hired a death doula. One of the reasons that I was inspired to become a death doula, she wanted to get really clear with her death. She just wanted to be able to look at death and have someone who specialized in that so she she hired this woman specifically so that she could help walk her closer to death and so she wasn't afraid Mm. but she ended up doing that and supporting her husband in and their son through the process that when i saw them after she had died they were light they were easy Mm. they were joyful they were so grateful for the time that they had with her they saw 
her in her final days, but they also were taking control of the process. They did natural death care at home. She was at home when she died and they learned how to cool the body. The death doula showed them how to wash the body and then she stayed there so that they could create an altar, go in, have their final moments with her, and then they moved her through the process of taking her body to the crematorium. Mm-hmm. And so what the death doula provided in that scenario was closure. Yeah. Closure for the family. And and so much more. Mm-hmm. You know, so much more. Hey listeners, I'm interrupting the show just for a moment to remind you about Patreon. The way that this show is funded is through listeners, through community support. I do not want to be an ad salesman. I do not want to interrupt my show with annoying ads like this one. I really would like for this show to be independent and remain that way. The only way for that to happen is for it to have some sort of money coming in. It costs a little bit of money and a lot of time to produce this show, and you can help make sure that it's financially sustainable. If you go to patreon.com slash renoids or just renoids.com and follow the link there, you can learn a little bit more. I have different levels from as little as $3 a month. I think of that one as the tip jar. If you would throw a dollar in a tip jar for this episode, maybe you should go to Patreon and sign up to do that automatically. All the way up to $20 a month for some patrons who have the resources to support local media in a really significant way. That makes a huge difference and helps cover a lot of the expenses of the show. So thank you so much to my current patrons. Thank you. I have a handful of new patrons who've just signed up in the last few weeks. I am endlessly appreciative. Again, if you would like to learn more, I would really appreciate it. Visit patreon.com slash renoites. And now, back to the episode. Yeah, tell me more about the natural death care thing, because I know we talked a little bit about embalming and all of these different services. If you, I, is that the right yeah, word, I guess? Services, yeah, services, goods all the different, and All the different like, goods and services that come through the kind of industrial death process. How does that compare to what you describe as the natural death process? And what are kind of the benefits of that? Are doulas generally act, uh, advocating for a more natural death process? Can you just talk a little bit about the, the difference mm-hmm. between this kind of like natural death process and more uh, structured, commercialized sort of uh, that path? For sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> such a good place to start because you'd hear people talk about the natural death care movement or natural death movement, I think is kind of the ways that people might hear this because it feels like a movement. Mm -hmm. You know, it used to be very natural that people died at home and we took care of our dead and the children saw the dead and the dying process very face on. But I think part of what the society is struggling with, with our inability to accept death and our fear and anxiety around death is because it is put away to the side and we never look at it. Mm -hmm. We're like, great, the doctors are going to take care of it. The morgue is going to take care of it. And we don't want to see death happening. We don't want to watch the body break down. We don't want to watch our loved ones not be able to eat and drink anymore. We don't want to watch them, you know, be stuck in bed or, you know, there is just, there is so much around just our own inabilities or abilities to watch death happen Mm -hmm. and not have it be an internal conversation with ourselves around, oh my gosh, I'm not ready for death because Mm -hmm. I can't see someone dying. So that's happening unconsciously. And so the death care industry is sort of, you know, bless their hearts. Like like they came in saying, let me take away this worry for you all. Let's, Let's just do this. Purchase a casket from us. You can have your person embalmed. We'll set up a wonderful little 
spectacle, and then, you know, check, check box, you're all set. That experience is what some people want. Mm -hmm. It is the traditional ritual of the end of a life. And until someone says, I don't want that, I want it this way, then most people are going to fall into that as a default. Mm. And embalming is in that group of decisions to make at the time, which started in the Civil War, actually. Embalming happened so that the folks who, the families of the soldiers could see their loved ones before the decomposition took too far. And, and they couldn't truly see their loved one anymore with uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever yeah. <laughs> you need to insert there. Yeah. Um, so the embalming process was a way for them to ship the bodies back and have them not decompose. Mm. So wonderful during the Civil War. We don't need that anymore because we have much technology to provide bodies staying cool for a long time. We don't need to embalm people mm. because it's kind of a gnarly process. If For folks that don't know, when you are embalming a human body that requires you to drain all of their fluids so after the person has died they go to the morgue or go to a um, mortuary and someone will drain their fluids they'll make an incision inside of their their belly button and they will drain all of their organs fluids as well and then they fill it up with formaldehyde and other kind of chemical concoctions that that preserve the body. So you're essentially preserving that person. Those chemicals are really strong and they last for a long, long time. And if you bury someone, there's certain laws around if you can have like a green burial, which is part of the natural death care movement, which mm -hmm. I'll talk about. You can't have those things if you're embalmed because the chemicals seep out into the uh, soil and mm. it's really bad for the environment. So embalming is like, you know, you, you put that embalmed person in a casket for an open viewing, and then when you bury them, you're buried in cement. So I don't know if people know that either. When you mm. are buried in a traditional cemetery, they're digging you six feet down. Oftentimes, you're stacking bodies on top of each other in cement holding mm. boxes, and then the casket goes inside there. So you're never even touching soil. Um, and that's also really harmful for the environment. And there's a challenging part of... What are we going to do with all the people who have died and the land that's required and the resources that are required to continue burying people in that yeah. way? So that's another element of the industrial movement that's a little bit like, okay, guys, we're really moving towards green energy, green mm. um, agriculture practices. And the way that we do death care in the industrial way is not actually going to support those wishes. Oh, okay. So... I can't say that that's why natural death care came. There was many reasons before my time that I couldn't speak to. But natural death care is really having the families and the loved ones and the people who have been caring for this individual if they were sick or if it's someone who accidentally died, um, you know, tragically, their people can become empowered to really be with the dead person. Mm -hmm. And honor them and be with death at the same time because really what you're doing is you're being with death and that's really scary yeah <laughs> I, mean, I mean that's the big takeaway that i understand from this whole world of death doulas is the discomfort of death and i will admit that i am 
highly uncomfortable with death. I don't know how to relate to people when they are experiencing a death in the family. I never know what to say. I strongly relate to the idea that death is wildly uncomfortable and that urge to kind of run away or put it out of sight or out of mind. I totally get it mm-hmm. so so very much and i think that i am not alone i think that is not. <laughs> kind of the the default for a lot of people and it sounds like a lot of what this is kind of finding power in learning to be maybe not comfortable but like you said present mm. in the discomfort of death can you talk a little bit about that like the empowerment or the the mindset of just being close to death and having that not be something that sends you like screaming for the hills a hundred percent yes and that sort of ties into your question too about what we hope that our clients choose right like Mm -hmm. if they choose a natural death to answer that really quickly like we want to make sure that the clients that we serve are having a death experience that feels right to them Mm. and so we are balancing i might have personal desires to not be embalmed but maybe this person really wants that and they've chosen that and their family has chosen that and it's not my job to say don't Mm. do that because it's their death i'm there to support their choices and to empower them advocate for certain options that they might not know they have but at the end of the day i'm meeting them where they are which Mm -hmm. is very much the same in birth you know it's not my birth it's yours i'm not going to push you towards something that might not be aligned for you Mm -hmm. the question that you just asked though is this larger philosophical, spiritual experience that I have experienced myself becoming so much more free. I think that the presence of death and being around death, what it brings to a person who is alive is freedom, um, peace, and a way to connect to the people who are experiencing deaths in their lives that is not so, oh, I feel so sorry for you, or I'm so uncomfortable because this person that you have died. It's understanding that that person was alive to that person, and now they've died, and that person is still alive for them, though. And so when we can be with death, then we can be with people that are alive who are experiencing death and we can just be with them in it. And and it is this experience of peaceful acceptance. It really changes you. Like it really changes how you exist in the in the world because you have accepted that death is coming. So much of us will put it aside and say, we're not going to die. You know, I hear the expression all the time. Well, if I die, I'm like, <laughs> my, my darling, it's not an if, it's a when. <laughs> and, you know, we talked about that so much in the death doula training that I took. And the ability to say, okay, it's happening. You surrender to that experience. You surrender to that part of life. And you say, I can only live because I will die. We cannot live without dying happening. No one gets out of here alive. Mm -hmm. So to be alive means we'll die. You will die. I will die. And to really get into that within your own psyche, to really believe in the impermanence of life, it makes you appreciate every single freaking moment. Mm. Um. I still get stressed out. Don't get me wrong. There's still times when I'm like yelling in traffic, but I can also take myself into a space of, 
almost like a meditation of, okay, this is just what's happening. Hmm. And one day I'll die. (laughs) And it doesn't really matter. And so that's where the freedom, I think, comes from. That's where the peace comes from is, is really allowing life to just be life. And you are a part of it and you're in it and you're participating in it. But because it's not forever, you savor those moments that are filled with beauty and joy and even pain it's a really beautiful thing and i want that for people mm-hmm. i want that for everyone and it takes a little bit of a stomach mm. you know to just look at it and say okay why is this fear here yeah. is it conditioned is it societal messages is it my family did i have a really bad experience early on in my life around death Did I watch a scary movie too early and death is now this like horrific, gory thing? Mm. Like there are so many ways that our psychology is triggered into thinking and believing that there's, that something's going to be awful. Yeah. Are are those, what are the big ones? That's a long list of things that kind of have shaped our ways of thinking about death. Mm. Are there like really major ones or big targets or things that you think are fundamental shifts in why we view death the way that we do? Is it a... You know, is it just in our culture? This seems to be, you know, there's other cultures in the world that have different reactions to death, but a lot of them, I think, have some parallels. Mm. Uh, what is it? What is, I know that was a long list you gave, yeah. but are there a couple key things you think that have driven this kind of aversion to understanding death as what it is? Yeah, yeah, totally. The, um, the first thing that I think of is, you know, yes, it's cultural. So however your culture views death is typically how the people within that culture are going to view death. If Mm -hmm. it's celebrated, if it's seen and shown, and that's, you know, that can still live within the U.S. That's just maybe like individual cultural groups within the United States. Uh, There's also an individual component. Mm. And so what I think also contributes is maybe in the biggest way, the first death that you've experienced, like to really sit and think about what was that experience like how Mm. old were you who was around you at the time how did they talk to you about it if you were a kid did they normalize it for you was it a person that you knew really well or a person that you didn't know really well i think about it from a a, a small child's perspective so i'm always thinking like what did the big people talk about did the big people cry did they let you see what happened because oftentimes we're shaped by these early childhood experiences and Maybe we haven't had someone die in our early childhood, but somebody did. Some death experience happened. And so if it wasn't like a media exposure situation, then typically it's a real life, it's a real life thing. Hmm. And I've heard many stories from people that said, yep, my mom died when I was six. They shipped me to my grandma's house and they didn't talk about it. They took all her pictures down and then it was like she never existed. And that was their first experience of death. That's so sad. Mm. That is such a disservice to the child, first of all, to understand how life works because now you've just taken that away from them. Mm-hmm. To understand the full circle of life, I think, is to really understand the way that you fit within all of this. So to to have a, an early experience of death where people – you know, shoved it under the rug. We didn't talk about our emotions. It just kind of happened and then it was over. 
that's trauma mm. right there. It's a moment in time that didn't feel complete. There was kind of a stop in there and that's going to stay. And even if you don't actively know that that was why, your nervous system does. And it will kind of come back to that. And and the people who have had really uh, you know, family-oriented experiences of death early in their lives, they definitely tend to be more open to this type of being with death mentality mm -hmm. uh, because they've seen it modeled for them. But oftentimes we just don't see it modeled anywhere. Yeah. Even if you did have a family experience of death, you know, in the larger society, you know, we're not seeing those things on TV. We're not seeing them by our government. We're not seeing them in celebrity. You know, we're seeing people try to push death off as far as possible. Mm. Let me get plastic surgery. Let me you know, change my appearance. I want to, the anti-aging movement. I did air quotes there for everyone who's <laughs> <laughs> on listening because that's not a thing. The uh, It was great in my training. Someone said the alternative to aging is dying. Yeah, if you, if you are anti-aging, that is, that's dying. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like if you're not aging anymore, that means you've died. Mm -hmm. So aging is a beautiful thing that allows you to continue living and it's the natural order. It's the mm. natural process of our organisms. But I also have a biology background. So I think of everything from like an evolutionary perspective, right. which very much helps. That very much helps. Mm -hmm. uh, when you mentioned the, you know, legacy building and kind of understanding what we're leaving behind, I think that's probably a real fear for people who are dying or expect to be dying before they have a chance to really cement what they want the world to remember of them or, or what their place was in the world. Mm -hmm. I imagine that's a incredibly scary thing for someone who is on the way out and feels like they didn't complete what they think they were supposed to complete. And I know there's no such thing as, you know, completing your life's work before you finish, I don't think. Yeah. What does that look like from a death doula's perspective of helping people to to create that understanding both for themselves and the people that they're leaving behind of like, what was my legacy? How will people continue to think of me afterwards? Can you talk about that element of the process? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such a sweet part. I think there is such a human component that gets brought in when you talk about it that way. And even just feeling you ask the question, it like kind of warms my heart a little bit and breaks it because the truth is we are never going to live our complete lives. Even if you make it to 95, 99, 105, you know, there's plenty of things that we can look back and say, I wish I did this differently or I wish I did this more or less. I think the, f the first thing that a death doula can provide is permission to a person to let go of what they didn't complete and say, look, this is the time we've got left. This is the time that you have. What do you want to do in this time? What feels like the most important thing that you can give yourself to wrap up your life? And what is that last thing that you can give your people? There, There is that permission, I think, that a death doula can provide, and that's a gift. The legacy and the way that people want to be remembered is so tailored to them and their individual passions in the world and you know, many people, there's several examples that I can share with you to include in the show notes because people make videos about this all the time. Like some things have really taken off and become a movement in and of themselves because of someone's death and wanting to be remembered that way. Like the white bike project, 
white bicycles. If if a cyclist dies, then mm-hmm. you they'll often put a white bicycle uh, around that area, and it signifies that there was a death there by a cyclist. And that started because someone wanted to honor their person that way. They the person didn't. I mean, they were a young person just mm-hmm. cycling to work, but that's how he was able to make sense of the death. Because for so many folks, if they didn't have these conversations with their people before they died, they're sort of left with this, how do I keep this person real for mm-hmm. me? How do I honor them? So that's why a death doula coming in when someone has a terminal diagnosis or is elderly can be so supportive to that group uh, of loved ones in general, as well as the dying person, because you can just facilitate the conversation that no one else knows how to facilitate. Mm-hmm. Most death doulas are comfortable enough with death that like, we are here to ask those questions that you otherwise just wouldn't be able to ask in a Tuesday night dinner conversation, <laughs> right? You're just like, ah. I, there's too much. It's, it's so big. Mm-hmm. So getting to ask the people like, what do you want? What's here that, that we can help do Mm -hmm. um i mean that again it all looks so different because we all die in our own ways yeah is it different being a doula and having kind of that separation from being one of the the bereaved when someone is going to die are people who are dying more comfortable talking to someone outside of their family having someone who is you know close to them and supportive but is there less fear for those people in talking to someone who is kind of from outside of their immediate circle, immediate family, who has that specific role for them? Is that part of the reason that it's easier for them is because you're close, but you're not too that close. close? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think that that comes into play, which is similar in birth as well. Mm. Like we're not in the experience, but we help facilitate the experience for the people who it is for them. And because we don't have that emotional attachment, we can hold space for their emotions to happen Mm. in totality. And we are not bringing our own stuff into the room. This is my plug for all doulas to do therapy. (laughs) Don't bring your stuff into the room. Mm -hmm. These are highly charged situations, death, birth, postpartum, all of it. If you haven't done your work, you could be bringing in all kinds of your own stuff. Your own desire to avenge a death that you didn't believe was dignified and you're Mm. like i want everyone to have that and then you are pushing people towards the types of things that you would want for them Hmm. so quick aside to do your work and then you can really meet people where they are and in that way yes you can be with people who are grieving deeply and you are close enough to understand what they're going through because you're also putting yourself in that position because there's so many people that they can't talk to about it it's Mm. so isolating that in and of itself is just such a gift Yeah. Yeah. What about burnout for doulas who are experiencing such highly emotional situations on the regular? Like for a person to go through through one death sounds scary and potentially traumatic and very hard. But to have that be what you do on the regular just seems very, very difficult and hard to manage. And I imagine this is also the same with, you know, hospice nurses and people who are Mm -hmm. around death not just sometimes, but very frequently. How do you manage that and prevent it from being, you know, just so routine that you lose the emotional connection? Kind of how do you find that balance of being so close to death without being overwhelmed by it or desensitized desensitized to it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks for asking that. You know, sounds hard. (laughs) It's, it's like the who watches the watchman type thing. Like, 
We are the people who are holding space for all the people to break. And we also need to break. We need to feel what we're experiencing. And the the woman who trained me, Elua Arthur, who's a powerful doula, please listen to anything that she puts out in the world. Books, podcasts, talks, all of it. I'll connect her resources. The best way that I know how to do that is to have a community around you mm. and to really build yourself up with the support that you need before you go in and just start taking clients. And that's where the co-op came in for me. Mm. I was experiencing burnout as a birth and postpartum doula. I couldn't keep <laughs> being everything for everyone. You know, in my mind, I was not being everything, but I was being so much for for so many people, I was not able to do it for myself. Mm -hmm. And I realized it's because I didn't have people around me who I could talk to about what I was experiencing. I couldn't take some time off because I was worried I was going to leave the families high and dry. And I didn't have like referrals that I, you know, here I can't make it to this visit, but like here's someone who who can and gives me a day off. So in regards to death and like being more specific to the death industry, first I will say, one part of this is that people who are death doulas or who are in death care, it, like a hospice nurse or folks who work in the in the spaces, I think other than maybe the ICU, because that's an entirely different beast, mm -hmm. um, we love it. <laughs> and that doesn't say, that's not to say that we don't get affected by it. You know, like you're saying, there's this balance to be struck between desensitization and overwhelm and it's really understanding your own boundaries understanding what you can reasonably give and what you need to receive as recovery as i've dug deeper into my practice you know i have this much more dialed in for birth because as a death doula i i took the training and i haven't been able to take clients yet because mm. the co-op is such a big part of what i'm doing right now but when i come back from a birth i know that i need probably to eat something probably to sleep. I need to not have any responsibilities the following day. If you have a bathtub nearby, you should use it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, good friends or a partner or an animal utilize the love that's there for you from those people and those creatures. Go take a walk, go cry. <laughs> Some people go to the gym, they need to like move it out of their body. Mm. Like you're you're holding energy. And so when you hold energy, whether it's like ecstatic birth energy, which can also be traumatic and death exists there, which is part of where like the birth death life cycle is so pronounced. Mm. But if you're never feeling it, that's when you get desensitized. Mm. So you have to feel the emotions that you're experiencing in the room. You can get attached to your clients. You can get close to their families. You can cry when they die. You know, you can be a human for them. You don't have to be a robot. And part of what makes death doulas in particular so useful and so accessible, I think, to people is because we are a human with them through the process. Mm. Nurses and folks who are in healthcare, they have to maintain some level of distance because they are seeing it, I think, too much. I'm not a nurse, so I cannot speak for that community. And I know that there are some who are perfectly fine with what they experience, but there are also them out there who are they've they need a break mm. you know and so burnout is very real but this society does not promote taking restful walks and right. like it's an idea that is rooted in liberation there's an incredible author and 
and book attached to that concept. Yeah, you really have to manage what what self-care looks like for you. Mm -hmm. As far as preparation logistically, like we talked a little bit about the emotional preparation, but there are things like wills and trusts. And again, if we all think we're never going to die, there's a lot of things that we're never going to do. And then at least our families have to deal with them after the fact, which can be very, very messy. And I know most people who probably should have these things, at least a little bit in order, just straight up don't. Uh, what can people do if people, again, not people who are expecting to die in the near future, but just people like you and me, I'm, you know, I'm turning 40 later this month, which isn't exactly super old, but I don't know, uh, people die at all ages. They sure do. So <laughs> what should someone who is, you know, relatively healthy, but wants to just be prepared in case a little bit, what's the bare minimum? What should people really put on the top of their list of like, okay, I really should not be setting this aside and just hoping it'll all work out. Mm, yes. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Um, the will is a thing. The will is something that like you can write right now and then continually edit as you grow. And so one of the things that we were taught is to start where your life is now. If you die tomorrow, your life looks like you've got renoites. Who takes over that? Hmm. If you've got a business, if you've got a dependent, if you've got kids, if you've got an elderly parent that you're taking care of, if you've got pets, um, if you have any businesses or entities or assets, where do those go? Who do they go to? Because if you don't take care of all those logistical things and everything is left, you know, buying well to the wind, then it goes through a system called probate, which is the court system in which the court has to understand all the documents that this person had. You have to collect every single legal, non-legal document in the world, present it to someone through probate court. And these are all just government employees who are doing this type of law. And they are sifting through to try to find out who is the next of kin, who has legal right to the finances, who has legal rights to the assets. That's a messy process that takes years, mm. years, and it's so expensive. And most things just are, it, it just prolongs the, the experience for people. And it can be extra trauma on top of already losing a person. You're like, and now I have to go to court every day. Mm. It's like, ugh. So, so if, if not doing it for yourself, doing it for the people that you're leaving behind. Do it for your people. Right? Yeah. Do it for your people. I mean, that's the really big takeaway here. It's like, sure, it's for yourself so that you can feel good about like, I know I want my body composted, for example. I made sure that everyone in my circle knows how much I want to be composted because that's important to me. Mm -hmm. But like, if they do the pot painting party at my funeral, like, okay, I won't be so sad. But like, <laughs> that's a fun thing that I want people to, to do. So- it's fun for me to imagine how my people are going to get to celebrate me. And so going through the process of writing a will, and I'll, I'll give you a resource for a free will. It's called freewill.org. And so you can begin a very basic will that you can continuously update as you have life changes. Hmm. A will is one thing, but then there's also your uh, medical power of attorney or a healthcare agent. It's a person and it's documents. So it's all encompassed in something called an advanced directive. And that's sort of a two-part thing where you've got a living will and a healthcare agent or a medical power of attorney. That's a person who makes all of your decisions. That's a, certainly a bigger thing if you've got a terminal illness or you know that there's a medical condition that's probably going to 
be the thing that kills you, but it is still important to have nonetheless because we could get in an accident and then there is nobody to make life altering decisions of, do you want to be on life support? Mm. How long do you want to be on life support? Do we resuscitate? Do we not resuscitate? What are the extreme measures that healthcare can go to to preserve your body? Because they can preserve your body for up to years now Mm. with technology. It's not like we're living by any means, but those are decisions to be made that can really break your heart when you see families who are like, I just don't want my person to die, so I'm just going to keep putting all of this money and time and energy into keeping them on life support, Mm. and they've essentially died. And maybe that person really didn't want that. And now they are having that happen. They're not necessarily experiencing it because maybe they're not fully there, but they are still in some way. So when you can prepare yourself with a healthcare agent and to have these documents in place, there is something for your people to look back on and some some guidelines to follow, some wishes to, to follow mm-hmm. when they're being faced with making these huge decisions. So- that's one way is like the one of the things is a will you know that kind of can encompass like your funeral wishes you can there's spaces to put all of your account information and passwords (laughs) share your passwords (laughs) um all the different documentation around that but i think the the biggest thing that people should realize is that if you've got a dependent especially kids those those papers need to be in order. They Mm. need to know where do those kids go, who gets to care for them. You know, even down to the little details, like they love this stuffy, they take it with them to bed. If they're going to have a hard night sleeping, turn the nightlight on and they really like snuggles or, you know, they would love this book. Like you can get really specific in caring for your people Mm. after you go. And I think that's an element that people don't think about as much. It's, It's such a gift to the ones you're leaving behind to plan for it now. And it's kind of this dual purpose around you get comfortable with the idea of dying Mm -hmm. and you accept your death in that process and it brings you closer to the people in your life and you you realize that you actually have maybe nobody in your life who you want to entrust that to. That can be a really big thing mm. when you're, you know, in a relationship, let's say, and the person who is your everyday person, you're looking around saying, okay, well, if I die right now, today, right, you're doing this as if you die tomorrow, mm-hmm. not when you're 80, then is this person really a partner to uh, me? Yeah, like, you, might, you might have like a wake up call. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can see like yikes this is this is a relationship that feels really like fun and and light and whatnot but it's not a person who you would trust your life and death decisions Mm. to so that can be like kind of a gut check or maybe it's like your next of kin is your sister and you haven't talked to them in a while and you're like well shit like they're gonna get all my stuff i need to rebuild that relationship Mm. or i need to reconnect with that person because like it or not chosen family is certainly family out there but your blood family that's how the that's how the court system sees it. That's how the legal system sees next of kin. And so if you have some rocky relationships with your friends and family or with your family, then they they will become even more strained mm. in death because then they're gonna I didn't want this and now I have to take care of her mess. And I mean, it just it can get really ugly. Mm. 
you talk a little bit about religion and spirituality, and I imagine that dealing with people who are dying, there's a whole spectrum of ways of talking and thinking about death. As a doula, how do you navigate those kind of different belief systems and different ideas of what happens after we die, what, uh, you know, traditions, religious traditions for the funeral, things like that? How do you kind of navigate those different really, really intense personal beliefs that are just so important to people as a doula who you may have different, you know, understandings about all of these processes? Uh, can you talk a little bit about that, kind of mm-hmm. dealing with the different cultural and religious components of when different people die in different communities, different families, different belief systems? Yeah, yeah. It's a cool concept, too, that is kind of hot right now. It's like culturally congruent care. Um, it's something that Dual Co-op is doing research around right now in the birth space, but it very much applies here. Mm-hmm. And it's something that we talked about a lot in the training because many people had that same question going into this work, like, what if I support someone who is a super strong atheist and they just believe that there's no soul and you just die? But I believe that, you know, you can be reincarnated. It's like, how do I support them authentically? Mm. So, again, Elua is is brilliant in her neutrality. She's like, ask them questions. Ask what they think might happen. Some people at the time of death or near death, they're way more open than they ever will be to the possibility of an afterlife or what happens to them next. Or they're finally dealing with like, oh my gosh, I don't think that souls exist. (laughs) And so then they're like, okay, what's going to happen to me? You know, so I think you can find that people are either more open to having more diverse conversations around it um, and might be more willing to see it from a different perspective. But I caution anyone to like push their beliefs into someone who don't have any. It's like maybe I have really strong beliefs and they have none. I'm not just going to be like, well, you should just take mine because they're pretty good. Um, (laughs) I would much rather reflectively conversate about what they think might be at the end and let it be just for them because partly what we see – in those conversations is that people are just grappling with life in in general. And like that's where religion can be really helpful because religion gives us some sort of a backdrop or a philosophy around what happens when people die. I mean, I don't think the concept of if you do something good on earth, you go to heaven and you do something bad on earth, you go to hell is particularly healthy. But it gives people some idea of like, I've lived this life, I'm going to heaven, I'm good. Mm. And so they can feel comfortable in that. Um, Some people have their minds totally made up that way. Some people really need to question and grapple with it. And that's okay. Again, the death doula's job is not to insert my beliefs into that space. It is to compassionately question with them this idea that is huge. Mm -hmm. And to again, hold space and and allow them space to figure it out for themselves and find something that feels good and that feels aligned. And sometimes that's just through conversation and sometimes there's more direct ways to sort of get at that. And those look, look like death meditations, um, which I encourage people to, to do and to find different resources around. Or if you have a death doula that you're working with, they might know of some death meditations they can lead you through. And we did them at the training and you really get to know like where you feel about death in those experiences Mm. because you're being walked through what death is like. When you go through a death meditation, you are imagining yourself as you are now dying 
and they walk you very specifically and vividly through the process so that you can feel what it feels like at each step. It's like, okay, now you no longer can move. Now you're in your bed. Who's around you? Who, who are the people that you have with you in that moment? You know that you only have six months to live. If you can walk, if you can move, where do you want to go? What do you want to be surrounded by? And those kinds of questions help like fill out how it is that you want your death to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, w- I definitely want to be at home or I, I'm okay to be in the hospital or whatever it is. So those things kind of happen, but then you get this, this point when you're deeper into the meditations that starts to be the, okay, now you're, you're gone. Now you're losing yourself. What does that feel like? It gives you the opportunity to really see, okay, if I'm just a soul or if I'm just energy and now my physical body has died because it's the physical body breaking down. It's not the inside of us that makes us Connor and Emily. It's the vessel that we are existing on earth in. So if you feel connected to yourself, if you feel connected to the consciousness in which you are considered alive, then the death of your physical body could actually be really freeing. Mm. And maybe you're more comfortable than you think. Or maybe you are given that opportunity, you realize, okay, I guess I'm just going into the blackness or the lightness, whatever mm. you want to say. And and that's okay, that's enough. Or that's not enough for me. And people can really dive into religion at that time. Mm. And so maybe the death doula is just there sharing various cultural, religious, spiritual resources with people that they might want to dig into. It could be that time for them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I could talk about this stuff for hours. This is so fascinating. Me too. We're running in time. Uh, you should... There needs, you should have a whole podcast. There probably is. Are there a lot of podcasts and like resources? Yeah, yeah, there's definitely podcasts about death. Yeah. Um, I don't have some that I can like, you know, fervently say, Mm -hmm. listen to this one. Um, one of the death doulas in the co op, when we first met, we went through the same training. We had a mutual friend who was like, you guys are doing the same thing. You Mm -hmm. should talk. And our first conversation on text message was, do you want to start a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> because we knew how much we could just talk about this oh, co- this subject. It's just such a fascinating topic. What did we miss? What else do you want people to know about either death doulas or just the death and dying process, things that people might have misconceptions about or really important takeaways from this conversation for people? Mm, yeah, that's... I wrote a bunch of notes down for, you know, this podcast, and I feel like there's a lot that we touched on and a lot that we didn't. And like you said, we could be here for hours. There's so much. Well, I'll make one call to action. Uh, There is an organization, a nationwide organization called the Funeral Consumer Alliance, the FCA. And they have different chapters in every state. And they are a consumer advocacy alliance, people who are experiencing the funeral industry, how to navigate it, providing them resources, providing them all sorts of things. And it's an incredible thing that we don't have in Nevada. We do not have a funeral consumer alliance Hmm. chapter in Nevada that is listed on their website. Um, And that would be awesome if we did. So if there are people out there who are listening who just love death because they're out there, I mean, yeah, 
like we're talking about death for four hours. We're here. But there are people who I've had conversations with. They're like, I just have loved death my whole life. I'm curious about it. I want to go into it. But they don't know where to start. And so if you feel like you are called into the death world or something is asking you to look deeper at your interest or curiosity with death, start by starting up this chapter Mm. in Nevada. I think that would be amazing. You know, if someone in the co-op doesn't get to it first, like, please just do that. Um, I think that would be an incredible resource for everyone here in Nevada. And second, that there are alternatives there. We didn't get into natural death care like too, too deeply, but there are alternatives to the traditional funeral model. They're very much the way that there is an alternative to everything. Conventional agriculture, now we got organics. Like there is an alternative to that process. And if it doesn't speak to you, if it doesn't feel right to you, look around uh, at the resources in your area. And one of the other resources that I'll share is the National Home Funeral Association. And you can do home funerals. They teach you all about it, a list of all the supplies that you need. And, you know, it's just such an empowering experience. So very much I would say look into those two resources as like overarching places to start and know that there are alternatives to to what people are experiencing because it's not always great. So I always want to make sure people don't feel like they're stuck in a system Mm -hmm. that isn't necessarily for them and their best interests. Yeah, I think the other thing is that you can take control of this experience. You can own your own death and it doesn't have to be scary. It can be empowering and really beautiful and lead to more connection and more joy and more aliveness. And that's like invaluable. It just really is. At the end of our death doula training, everyone went around and said, through the study of death, I have learned about life. And then we inserted our answers there. And they're so diverse. They're so deep. It's it's deep. This is a deep concept. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the end of existence. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like you can get really like meta in that mm-hmm. kind of way of thinking, but allow yourselves to go there. You know, pick up a book about death. Watch films about death. Um, there's one on Netflix. Uh, it's Alternate Endings, Five Ways to Die in America. Um, that's a great place to start. You're just seeing that there's different options for the way that you can dispose of your body at the end of your life and just what people are going through emotionally. Just interface with it. Be around death more. It's it's worth it. It's worth it. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was fascinating. Yeah. I Like I said, when we talked at the market, I was like, oh, yeah, this is going to be Uh, I mean, we had basically an entire podcast like conversation Mm -hmm. just at the market getting started on this stuff. And now even at the end of this episode, I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's so much more. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's been fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much. And hopefully for people who are listening, got some both practical steps, things that they can do, um, as well as maybe just opening their their minds to thinking a little bit more about these things and kind Mm -hmm. of taking the first steps on the road to being a little bit more comfortable and a little bit more prepared for Uh, what we're all going to have to face sooner or later, right? Mm -hmm. It's not an if, it's a when. (laughs) Um, And you can support yourselves and your people by understanding that it's it's there, being accepting of that, like you said. And 
and follow the doula co-op as well for different offerings that we're going to be putting out in 2024 um, about death and grief and having really hard conversations support groups you know webinars things like that you know we're we're here to try to help ease this experience for people and so keep up on that and and talk to your people you know talk talk to that boyfriend that maybe shouldn't be your boyfriend anymore (laughs) and we'll see how it goes perfect thank you so much i really appreciate it yes thank you connor Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Renoites and extra special thanks to my guest, Emily Barney. What a conversation. Really, really fantastic to have her on the show. Like I said on the episode, I could talk about this stuff for hours. So fascinating, so interesting, and serious stuff. You know, I think it's kind of fun to have some of these episodes that are a little bit, not necessarily heavy, but we'll call them substantial Death and dying is a pretty big deal, so it was great to have someone who can talk so eloquently and interestingly about one of the most important parts of our lives, the end of it. So thank you again to Emily for coming on the show, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends. Biggest thing you can do to help this show is spread the word. Word of mouth means everything for a show like this. A couple free, easy suggestions. Share social media posts. I post new episode posts on Instagram every Tuesday when episodes are out. You can just hit that share button and share it as a story. It will reach so many more people than I can do just by posting on my own page and my own stories. So spread the word, tell your friends and family, post on social media, engage, leave comments, like, comment, share, all that good stuff. It really does make all the difference in the world. The show has been super fun. I have had so many great guests, but there's still a ton of people who don't even know that the show exists. At the farmer's market, I have people regularly come up and say, oh, what? There's a podcast? Oh, that's a thing. So help me out. Let people know. I would love for everyone in Reno who listens to podcasts to at least know that the show exists. So thank you for doing your part. That is all I've got for you this week. Next week on the podcast, I'm very excited. My guest is our new police chief, Catherine Nance. She's been in that position for about six months or so, and I got to sit down with her for a long-form interview about policing, the role of police, her priorities for the department, tons of stuff. A really great episode. Check that one out next Tuesday. And that's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. Have a good one.